welcome, welcome, welcome to the Carl Landry Record Club, a music podcast from the right Ricky Sanchez. I'm Spike Eskin with Mootlu, 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 three Mootlus. Yo, 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 triple Mootlu. Triple Mootlu with his upgraded internet. I'm feeling oh, so Oh man, good. it's beautiful. Crystal clear, smooth, smooth internet. Yeah. When we used to record Moot was like the slow skis in the X- Xfinity commercial, like the family of turtles. Yeah. <laughs> Moot was using internet, uh, was using dial-up before, and now he's now he's on the information superhighway. It's good to join 2021 yeah. and be a part of it. You know, <laughs> you, you can't tell from listening, but it, it makes the experience so much more special. Our intro music is from Marion Hill. It is called I Should Let You Know. We usually talk about three albums on the pod. One that Moot picks, one that I pick, one that a listener picks, and we're going to do that today. The one from me is Ice Cube's The Predator. The listener album is Mad Seasons Above, and that is from Coin Chick on Apple Podcasts. And Mootloo's album is Television's Marquee Moon. If you would like to suggest an album for us to talk about, which many people have and many people hopefully will continue to do, do it in the Apple Podcast reviews. Leave us a five-star rating. Leave us the review for the album. Then grip it, rip it, and move on. (laughs) Just like Tommy from Down the Shore. Just like Tommy from Down the Shore does. We're up to, I I forget what I looked at, we're up to 85 or 86 five-star ratings. When we get to 100, moot sings the 90s and 80s sitcom mega mix that we post on the internet uh, in full video. I have one of the songs so far. Moot keeps saying that he's going to like chip away at it. There's I been got very one little so chipping. far. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I chipped away at the first one, but I will start. Uh, <laughs> I guess the question is, I'm trying to find, you know, I'm trying to think how many I should do. I kind of made a list hmm. and it looks like Tommy from down the shore. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna jump in and maybe do a couple, sing a tune or two. You know, yeah. I can sing too, man. Come on, yeah. let's go. But uh, yeah, so it's just a, you know, I I don't know, a dozen, fourteen, fifteen. What's a what's a good medley? It's gonna be long. I mean, already all, the all of those all of those numbers sound good, especially the higher ones sound even better. <laughs> Family ties is on the list, right? Of course, of okay. course. Growing should pains. I divulge the list? I have the list here. Should I be doing that? Or no, I guess should it be shouldn't. a surprise? Growing Pains is on the list? Of course, of course. Okay. Perfect Strangers? Of course. Do you know what I saw the other day that I had no idea was the case? Oh, what song was it? Friends, for their initial couple of pilots, had, oh, You Shiny Happy People by R.E.M. was not really? the Friends song. Yes, I will send you a link to the, it's on YouTube. They have the intro and everything. Instead of the Rembrandts? Correct. Which I don't have on the list. I'll just be honest. Nah, nah, nah. We don't need that one. We don't need that one. Yeah. You could do a beatbox version of the Seinfeld one. Or like a... a, I could? Yeah. It's like a bass riff, like a slap bass riff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I do have a couple instrumentals, I should say. Oh, really? Uh, Yeah. Should I divulge what they are? Just divulge one. Divulge one. Sanford and Son. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's going to be particularly bizarre because... I'm going to be acapella singing and a produced instrumental track. It's going to be very weird. Yeah, but it'll be good. But it'll be good. It will yeah. be good. It That's will be good. That's the kind of stuff. The internet loves weird shit like that. It's going to be long, though, especially if we get, you know, I'm thinking somewhere between a dozen and 15. Yeah, that's so, be good. So, you know, we'll somewhere in that ballpark. It's going to be very long. Now, does that suit our purposes? I mean, because even the first one I sent... That's was what she over said. 30 seconds. That's what she said. <laughs> I, 
I think the first one you sent was like a minute 20. No, Wasn't the first it? one was, it's like 37 seconds or something. Oh, okay. That's mu- then that's fine. Then this will be fine. Yeah, I, I'm trying, as a matter of fact, that's probably on the long side. Yeah. I'll, because some I'm, of these, I just want to do little snippets, because the whole thing of a medley is you don't do the whole tune. You, yeah. And I'm going to leave it to you to kind of, you know, sort of post-production vibe that bad boy up, you know? You will leave it to me, and then I will leave it to CJ. That'll that's what I was about to say. Yeah. I said, yeah. yeah. And then I'll just pay somebody else to do it. <laughs> Are we going to put titles on each one i guess we should right I yeah mean, i'll have them i'll have them put the title on the bottom in video it's gonna be fun it's gonna be fun it's gonna be a trip down memory lane if you uh if you grew up with those songs and those shows as i did you know absolutely but i'm not sure the kids that are like younger than 35 30 maybe are Let gonna me tell you know some of these songs they can fuck right off because <laughs> i knew you were gonna say that i knew well, you were gonna say he, here's yes well that's i, <laughs> I felt i could hear it I knew that's where what, what your reaction was going to be. Couple of things. I do the podcast for me. My theory is this: we need a Scarface uh, snippet. Who put this thing together? Me, me. Asshole. Yeah. <laughs> you know when he's like sitting in the uh, hot tub. Well, I always think if I do things that I find amusing, always, then right. I will always know what the right thing to do is because the answer will be: Do I find it amusing or not? Right. Right. That's it. You know, that's so, a great point, actually, I think, because that applies to music, like creation of music. There's always this thing of, you know, are you writing a song? For the fans or... Right. Or are you right. writing it for you? And if, if in turn, if you're writing it for you and you're inspired, well, then ideally the fans will like it. The listeners will like it. And that's kind that's, of the same here, I guess, right? That's what I... The merch for, uh, for Rights to Ricky Sanchez. I remember one of the merch guys or was like... Hey, why are you always doing black shirts that look like concert t-shirts? And I was like, well, because I like black concert t-shirts. So, right. and this is my podcast and I get to have merch. So, and I've been doing it for so many years and doing it the same way that the people that still listen to us like the shit that we do. So that's, I yeah. think it, it's the best way to know if something is right or not. Here's the other thing, man. It's not like we're doing the pod in front of a crowd like, we don't get to see everybody and talk to everybody. We have no idea who these people are. Right. So I have no idea what they would like. I only know what I would like, and I would love a full, long version of you singing yeah. sitcom themes. Well, we've been talking about this for a while. Mm-hmm. It's it's sort of second nature for me. I mean, it's something I was meant to do. Yeah. This was the perfect context for us to do it. So yeah. why we're close. It? It's sort of like I did that first one, and I'll just keep chipping away bits and pieces, you know. Uh, and like I said... Uh, Tommy from down the shore. I think was it Mike was uh, tweeting with us. I know he's one of our listeners. As a matter of fact, was uh, I'm not oh, sure. Oh, that was asking. That was asking. Yeah, that was if asking. Tommy from down the shore would make so. Sense. Yeah. yeah, I want to give him a shout because he he's onto something there. Because I was definitely already thinking that Tommy should make a. Is there like a shortened like Tommy from down the TFDTS? Can we call him that, or is that too weird? No, I think we just got to call him Tommy from down the shore, or just call him Tom. If you just call him Tommy in it without. Referring anything else, you sound sort of like the kid in The Shining. That's what I'm saying. The little boy that lives in his mouth. Right. Like, (laughs) if we just call him Tommy, it just sounds like he's an imaginary friend or something. That's why you got to say the full Tommy from down the shore. Tommy from down the shore. You can shorten it sometimes. You can say Tommy down the shore. Yes. Yes. Because that's That's where he is. That's what John John Marks is. John Marks always says Tommy down the shore. It's a little, it flows a little easier, I think. And big shout out, too, to 
John and Ike and the whole uh, the whole staff because you guys had an epic Eagles uh, day. Oh yeah, we do that every year. We do that every year. Is it the same day every year? I somehow thought it was at a different time last year. But no, no it's- we do it. We do it the first day. Well, we canceled it last year because it happened. So we always do it the first day of legal tampering for NFL free agency because that's when the most news is. But that day happened five days after the COVID shutdown. Uh, so we normally do it live at a, a bar. Not only could we not do it live at a bar, we weren't even sure how long we would be coming into the radio station. So we were able right. to do it all. So the, the idea is to have everyone on everybody else's show all day long. Which and is awesome. It's like, it's like it's when WWF cool. would like, what would they call that? The Battle Royale where all yeah. the wrestlers would be in there? Yeah. This is like the Philly sports talk version of that. Yeah, it's just, it's sort of neat to hear them. I, I always say on the station that people imagine when they think of the radio station, they think of it sort of like a fraternity house where we're all there and all busting each other's balls and all talking about sports all the time. Except on the air for the town hall, they get to hear it that way. Like they get to right. hear everyone talking at times they're not normally talking. I, I think it's a lot of fun. It's, it's not particularly complicated. It's just a, a good way to... It's not rocket science or anything, but it's a good way to you know get everybody interacting in a in a positive way. I think. No, nah, it's great. It's great. It's it's great radio. I have to say. Oh, cool. I'm glad. Yeah, you big it. props, me. Thanks, buddy. Are you ready? I had this other thing that I wanted to ask you about, but I completely forgot about it. So, do you just want to get into the? You weren't going to ask me if I've ever uh, danced with the devil in a pale moonlight, have you? Yes, have you? Have you? Uh, uh, if it gets cold enough. Okay. All right. There we go. That's Wasn't that in, is from the Batman, but- Yeah. Oh, this is what I was going to say. This is what I was going to say. In, in addition to uh, the young kids not enjoying it because they're not old enough to know the songs, and I said they can fuck right off. Generation X is the best generation, and we get no credit. Millennials shit on baby boomers. Baby boomers shit on millennials. Millennials shit on Gen Z. Everybody forgets that Generation X is just here- running all the companies with all the, like, it's us. We're the ones here. We're just, everyone else is bitching and moaning. We're just going the fuck to work. Like, that's all we're doing and running. Just putting in the real work. Yes. Driving society forward. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. We're the ones, the scientists that are making the vaccines. I'm sorry they're in Generation X. That's not my fault. I didn't, you know, I'm sorry. No, no apologies needed, man. Yeah, man, we're, you know, we're pushing the ball up the mountain. You know what I mean? We were the ones that made X cool. Like X had, the letter X had this two or three decade run of everything sounding cool if it had X in it. That's because of us. That's because of right. Generation X. But there's, all, we, there is a, there's also iconic things that I associate with Gen X, including records we're discussing yes. today. That's what but I, I always think of yeah. Reality Bites. I don't know yes. why. Well, that's is, a bad example. I, that's I a bad say, example. Listen, I was going to ask you, is that that's not the way to... That's not the snapshot you want to give people of Generation X. Although, great actors. I love Ethan Hawke and uh, and Ben Stiller and Winona Ryder too. I mean, she's she. I would say I like some of her earlier stuff. Maybe not. Heather's. Maybe not. Heather's is classic. Yeah. Yeah. Reality Bites. It is a caricature of Gen X, almost in a sense of being. Not a parody of it, but yeah, it's sort of like or sort of the car, like the generic version of it, or something. Yeah, generic. Not everybody was like the reality bites 
people, you know, but that's what you do for a movie. But yeah, I think it is a, it's definitely a seminal movie for Gen Xers, but I would hate for millennials or Gen Zers to watch Reality Bites and go, oh, that's who you are. That's selling it short. Yeah. Way short. Way short. Well, why don't we do that? You want to do that album first? You want to do the listener album first? Just because we're talking about Gen X? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's perfect. So listener album came from Coin Chick on Apple Podcasts. By the way, if you don't use Apple... Go to carlandryrecordclub.com. There we have all the pods. We have a list of all the albums we've done, but there's also an email, a contact us thing there, and you can suggest an album there. So Coinshake suggests Mad Seasons Above. who is a music person that is the age of, of you and I, a Gen X music person, definitely knows Mad Season. Legendary album. It's the only Mad Season album, only one. As the story goes, so it's a supergroup, right? It is one of a few 90s era supergroups. As the story goes, Mike McCready from Pearl Jam goes to rehab. At rehab, he meets John Baker Saunders. They get out of rehab They go back to Seattle. They start a band with the drummer from the Screaming Trees, also a legendary 90s Seattle band, Screaming Trees, Eric Martin. Then Mike McCready recruits Lane Staley from Alice in Chains to sing in the band. And the hope was because McCready's now clean and Baker Saunders is now clean, that Lane Staley, who eventually died, had just a fucking terrible heroin problem, just a crushing drug problem. The hope was him hanging out with those people would be a good influence on him, you know? And that gives such a, a sort of a sad undercurrent to this record that yeah. well, there was almost this sort of goal behind it in a, in a strange way, you know? Yeah. There's a sad undercurrent behind Lane Staley's, like all of his work and all of his, like he was, he was, in all of his music, he was battling it, you know? In his yeah. lyrics, he was battling it. You could look at him and see he was battling it, you know? Yeah, and just for the record, I have to say, I, I love that we're doing this record because Lane Staley and Alice in Chains' favorite band of that era. Oh, really? Me. Hands okay. down. I've, I've continually debated if I would pick one of those records and, you know, is it too obvious maybe? But So I'm glad we kind of got into it from this angle. Yeah, I was a, I would say my favorite from that album, from that era is Nirvana, pretty, pretty yeah. easily. can't go least, wrong with that. Least favorite, it's almost boring to say Nirvana, you know, a least favorite is Pearl Jam, not even close, by far my least favorite. Did you ever, did you ever see Alice in Chains with Lane Staley? Did you ever see a show? I never got to see them live. I, I wish I could have. I did see, I never saw Alice in Chains. I with Lane Staley. I did see Alice in Chains on their first tour with William Duvall, who is the singer now. Who I've I heard is pretty them. amazing and sounds kind of like Lane, right? I mean, Let me tell you, man. I, so I saw him at the TLA. It was their first, they did like an underplay tour. What a powerful voice. Like just a similar to Lane in that he can sing all of Lane's parts and it, the song sounds like an Alice in Chains song, but a much... Bigger voice, I guess I would say. Now, I, it, it is a, he's just got a very, very, very strong voice. It was one of the best shows I've ever seen. But Same my thing always was, how can you call it Alice in Chains without Lane Staley? I well, guess that's why I resisted the latter day 
Allison Chains because I just thought he was he was really the heart and soul of that band, wasn't he? In a sense, I I think I thought that way until I heard Jerry Cantrell solo, and I heard Jerry Cantrell sing Allison Chains songs, and I'm like, oh, his voice is in every Jerry Cantrell sings in, on every important Alice in Chains song, you know? And his voice is there too. And he wrote all the music. Lane wrote all the lyrics, but Jerry Cantrell wrote all the music. And I guess I sort of felt, I agreed with you, but then I thought to myself, if Jerry Cantrell thinks it's okay to call it Alice in Chains, then I'm okay with him calling it Alice in Chains. You know? Yeah, and a big part of the, mag- I still think together, they were a whole greater than the sum because a big part of that sound was the blend of their voices together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And Jerry Cantrell had a way of sounding like Lane. Yep. And vice versa. You couldn't always tell differentiate. Who was yeah, you yeah. couldn't always tell. There was a band called Cold. I don't know if you know the band. They were a, a new metal era band, but not a new metal band. And the singer was this guy, Scooter Ward, who they're still a band and he's still a singer, but struggled with drugs himself. And he told me once that Lane was his idol and he met Lane toward the end. And he said he saw him at a Halloween party and could not even, he said he saw him and it looked like he was an old lady. He said that he couldn't even, that it was depressing to have met him at that point because he had fallen apart so much, you know, because of the the, the battle with heroin. Just a, that doesn't seem like a drug that anyone wins a battle with. No. Heroin, and know? I'm, I'm, I'm even thinking on the MTV Unplugged. Oh yeah. It was yeah. tough to watch him and he still sounded great. And that's one of the great MTV Unplugged sessions to me, but... Even there, I remember, even just thinking back to, you know, when you first saw him on Man, you know, Man in the Box when that single came out. You know, he, he he was healthy then. He looked good. He was, mm-hmm. you know, I think even his voice didn't have the same strength by that time. Because when oh, you think yeah. of the, the big out. hook on Man in the Box, the way the, the sustain he has, the projection he has, the the grit that he puts into that chorus on that song, I'm not sure that he could have done that later on as things went on. Well, a guy like that is Chris Cornell. Like if you saw Chris Cornell on a good night, Chris Cornell was amazing. Oh, yeah. If, another guy who struggled the same way. If you saw Chris Cornell on a bad night, it was really, really, really forgettable. I, I think they wow. probably had Did you some, happen to see him on a on a bad night? I saw him on a bad night, and I saw him on a good night. Um, and a world of difference in between just two. Not even close to the same thing. Yeah, yeah. And Scott Weiland, the same thing. I, I saw Scott Weiland when he had kicked it and he was obsessed with exercising when I saw Scott Weiland. So, you know, they have those people who have those really addictive personalities and they always get addicted to something. And when I met Scott Weiland, he was addicted to exercise and he was just in incredible shape. And before the the thing that we did with them with YSP, he was working out. And then afterwards he was working out. Oh, but, really? <laughs> yeah, but you can work... I, Working out doesn't feel as good as heroin, you know? And I think that's what they're always chasing is that whatever they do, it doesn't feel as good as heroin, you know? It's brutal. It's it's terrible. The album itself, the Mad Season record, written and recorded basically in two weeks. McCready writes the music and 
Lane writes all of the lyrics, which are typically like the lyrics to this album. I would say the music sometimes sounds like Alice in Chains, other times doesn't. It doesn't sound like an Alice in Chains record. The lyrics, when you listen to them and when you read them, are very clearly Lane Staley lyrics, right? I yeah, mean, and I would say the vocals are the other thread. Yes, Some obviously. of the harmony layering. Although it's interesting because I think he layered a lot of it himself, right? Or maybe Mark Lanigan was part of it. But I think some of these songs, it's just Lane vocals layered, whereas Alice in Chains, you always had Jerry in there. So. Right, right. But it's yeah. a sound. It's a signature sound, those harmonies. It certainly sounds like an album that was written and recorded in two weeks, right? And I, I don't say that negatively. I say it in that there's a lot of different ideas and there's a lot of different sounds and it doesn't sound totally polished and it doesn't sound like they... You know, they're long songs. It doesn't sound like they they really carefully constructed everything. It sounds like an album full of ideas. And sometimes I think those ideas sound great. And sometimes I get bored. When I went back to this record, I was like, hmm, I'm amazed at how much I really like the parts that I like and how bored I am by the parts that I don't. You know, it had been years since I'd listened to it. Especially towards the end. Yeah. It's basically a few instrumental tracks. Yeah, yeah. You know, which I still like musically, but there isn't quite the the song craft throughout mm-hmm. the record that you would have had on Alice in Chains, for example. No, yeah. Which was have, meticulously like, composed and arranged, you know? Yeah, even the long stuff. You can even see that on the, the post-lane stuff. And maybe that was Cantrell, you know, too. Because the, the post-lane stuff is like that. Even if the song is eight minutes, there's a point to all eight minutes. You know you know where it's going. This sort of meanders. Some of the instrumental tracks will go two and a half minutes where there's just instrumental. And then all of a sudden there's lane in the middle of the song. Right. The song that everybody knows is... I would say River of Deceit is probably the, the, the song that ends up on the radio that everyone knows. My pain is self-chosen At least so the perfect It reminds me that the closest thing, it does sound like a Jar of Flies song to me. Hundred percent, kind of yeah. in that. I don't want to say. Well, yeah, I, I don't know why I thought of no excuses, but just that collection yeah. of songs. Mm-hmm. It's in yeah. that pocket for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Sap and Jar of Flies, those two things. And then there are other songs where Allison Chains got classified as grunge, which is a funny movement because when you look at it historically, I remember I was working at YSP, and the grunge era songs that we had would always test very well in research. And Tim, my boss. Tim Sabian, who worked with Howard Stern, when I was music director, would say, we need to play more of the grunge songs. And I was like, Tim, there's only like five grunge bands. And, and I was like, there's only like 40 songs you can play, 30 or 40 songs that anyone even knows. It was less of a movement. It wasn't really a movement. It was just a collection of bands that came out at the same time that had a similar sound. But Alice in Chains sounds like they listen to Black Sabbath all the time. You know, like that, that there's, there's so much of the, the syncopation between his voice and the guitar and that is very Black Sabbath and the song I'm Above on here. How 
has that sort of vibe that I thought Allison Chains had when they were when they were doing that sort of thing. Yeah, and he's got the signature Lane approach of sort of harmonies in the verse and the chorus. Yeah, yeah. The for whole sure. vocal is in a in a harmony form, yep. and then he kind of hits like a more of a rhythmic kind of thing on the chorus, almost like a little bit like a Zeppelin kind of thing. Or just mm-hmm. he would he you ha- he had songs like that or performances like that on Alice in Chains too. That's when I love Lane the most, when he would go for it a little bit, you know, when, yeah. he, would, when yeah. he would push his voice a little bit, because yeah. he had like a great scream. I, I get back to Man in the Box, you know? Yeah. But then he also had the, now, now, now. He had that too. Yeah. Or even Them Bones has a, a great oh, Lane yeah. scream on it. And those know? are more like chunky kind of metal riffs, you know? Yeah. Well, they, I think, I think it was Poison that talked about touring with Alice in Chains early. Like they toured know, together, really? Yeah, yeah. Before, that I would not have guessed. Yeah. Well, before before grunge became a thing that people recognized, the grunge bands had a tour with rock bands. Right. You know, like they're, they're, that, that's all that was there. Were there were the eighties the eighties bands? You know, that survived. So they opened up for for Poison. I think pretty early. What else on here did I love? I don't know anything. Is a great incredible, hooky, great hooky yeah. kind of vocal. Great hooky vocal. The riff is hooky as well i think the riff is something that gets in your head and then you mentioned the i'm pretty sure it's at the end all alone not super interesting but the vibe and the atmosphere is like pretty and maybe stonesy almost to it a almost has like extent. a psychedelic mm-hmm. kind of thing it's not really a song it's no, sort of it's a, a groove vibe. yeah it's yeah. a vibe with a cool hook basically yeah yeah which and sometimes you know you can get away with that mm-hmm. sometimes and, you well, say at the health no verses on this one just the hook baby Especially, that's all anybody likes anyway. Yeah, who cares? You know, Just cut right. right to the chase, right? Give Why me the not? hook. Give me the I, I told somebody at work once, I was like a, uh, they were asking about programming music and I was like, if I get a song that doesn't get to the hook before the minute mark, that song is over. Like <laughs> the, there's no way a song is going to be a hit if I'm waiting longer than 60 Is that a tried and true formula, no matter what? No, just obviously I know now I'm going to get emails and Yeah, uh, yeah and you're going to face the backlash for this. I'm telling you, <laughs> it works. If Just watch the clock. Watch any, any song of a, a, a normal structure that becomes a hit, the hook comes before 60 seconds. You really start to... There are some songs too that start with the hook, and that makes it that makes it even easier. But um, well, you had a great uh, thread going on the on the Carl Twitter. Yeah, and we got so many great uh, reaction responses to that. Yeah, what's better than that, man? Just hit them with the hook right out of the gate, the, right? Right in the beginning. Come on. Yeah, why not? Uh, you know what? I, I was thinking about that. Like, I don't think I've ever really done that. You I always think now. verse, pre-chorus, chorus, or at least verse, chorus. I'm like. Yeah. 
why not just always do the hook first or as much why as you not? can? Yeah. It's not, it's not something. You don't have when, to do the full hook. Sometimes they do like a first two lines of the hook, you know, sort of thing. Right. Like a half chorus kind of yeah, thing just to tease chorus. it. Yep. Yeah. But I'm thinking, I think for a lot of writers, you always think of like sort of an arc to the song. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to start them here with the verse. Maybe there's a pre-chorus. I'm a big fan of the pre-chorus. Pre-choruses are great. You know, not always necessary. But then I'm like, you know what? The hook is the magic. I, I'm surprised more songs don't do it now that I think mm-hmm. about it. And after that thread, there must have been like 50 different songs. I was like, oh, yeah. And every lot. single one of those is is a great song, if not a transcendent song. Yeah. So. Hook's, a, hook's a great way to start off a song. I'm sorry. I've been talking a lot. I... The reason I, I brought up that song at the end and you mentioned a sort of a vibe and, you know, sort of all over the place, the whole album seems like that to me. And it is a good listen as, a, as an album and it's a good listen as a vibe and it is a, an amazing piece of memorabilia from the era. It's not full of great tunes, I don't think. There are some great moments, but not full of like banger after banger, this album. And I would say Wake Up. Oh, yeah. The oh, first course. tune. Yeah, yeah. Yep. yep that yep. puts you into the mood, mm-hmm. just the way that sort of laid back atmospheric groove. And then, you know, once again, his songs about sort of, as always, self-destruction, struggle with addiction. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got to love that about Lane. He was, we were talking about this, the whole time he was in the public eye, Yeah. he was struggling with addiction. Mm-hmm. And he chronicled that in every situation he was in. That takes courage. You know, it's not always easy to show that to the world. It's like we, I guess Alice in Chains probably broke through right at the start of the 90s, maybe late 80s. Yeah. yeah. That whole decade yeah. and a half, he was in the public eye. He, this is what he was dealing with. And he documented it, you know, including on this album. Well, in a sad way, you wonder if we would have ever had anything if he wasn't addicted to heroin. You know, like so, so much of, not saying that he wasn't capable Maybe he was, but so much of his inspiration came from that pain and that struggle. Right. And maybe no matter no matter how he lived, he would have found in, inspiration from some pain and some struggle, and would have made it into the music. But it's hard to imagine Alice in Chains or Lane Staley without that. Yeah, that was a defining lyrical mm-hmm. theme. Oh, and it's great cover art, and Lane did the cover art, which yeah, which know. is beautiful, amazing. Yeah, it's an awesome cover art. No, this was a great pick. This was a great listener, but I was excited when I when I saw this on the docket. Yeah, yeah. it's a it was a cool album to go back to that I probably wouldn't have gone back to otherwise. You know, I probably wouldn't have ever thought about aside from River Deceit. You want to do yours? Next? Yeah. You want to do television? Yeah, I think it's a good segue. Another band that's sort of identified with a particular place and time. I could, must have been a But, um, you know, thinking of CBGBs and... So I have no idea who this band is. Really? Yeah, and I purposely... So oh, I yeah, re- I got you. I got... I was, yeah. All right, this so is good. Maybe I've heard of them. Maybe I've seen the name before, but I have no idea who they are. 
So it's funny you said that because that sort of nullifies something I said. It, it will be funny to go through my notes on this album not knowing anything about the band. I've not, That's I know interesting. Nothing. That's yeah. interesting. They sort of came up at that mid-'70s moment at CBGB's. Mm-hmm. I mean, I always identify them with Blondie and Talking Heads and those bands, although they're just oh, okay. like the grunge bands, all totally different. Yes. The only unifying thing is that it was mid-'70s. Mm-hmm. Punk, post-punk, but then some people can't decide if television is really punk. I don't consider them to be. Hmm. You know, I don't. I mean, there's some elements to it, but so he, yeah, I have some punk things written down. So this all tracks. It it's interesting to me that they would be called post-punk though, because that wouldn't be the first. That isn't the first thing that that popped into my mind when I heard them. Yeah, interesting, hmm. interesting group. But just a little before we delve in, a little backdrop. Yeah. They were formed in 73 by the guitarist Tom Verlaine and bassist Richard Hell. They were friends as teenagers. They attended the same school in Delaware, and then they both uh, relocated to New York City. Uh, Initially, they were called the Neon Boys. It was just a trio with uh, Verlaine and Richard Hell and Billy Ficka. But after about a year or so, they added Richard Lloyd and renamed themselves Television. That was a key addition because really the defining characteristic of this band to me is the interlocking guitars of Richard Lloyd and Tom Verlaine. I mean, that's just the tight, melodic, mm-hmm. harmonic structures they create with the guitars. That's, that's, that's the cornerstone of their sound. Just a little more backdrop. Their manager, Terry Ork, uh, after they'd been together for a bit, convinced uh, Hilly Crystal, the owner of CBGBs, to give them a regular gig. And the rest, as they say, was history. You know, they became a seminal band at that time, in that era in New York City's rock scene. But what happened over time was as they progressed, there started to be tension between Tom Verlaine and Richard Hell. Because Tom Verlaine and, and the other members of the band, they really wanted to pursue sort of a more musically proficient, mm. you know, compositional and instrumental sound. Mm. And I think Richard Hell was more dialed into that sort of raw, lo-fi kind of simple sort of punk ethos, you know? Yeah. And I think also Tom Verlaine started to resent some of Richard Hell's antics on stage. <laughs> so <laughs> so basically he split and formed the Heartbreakers. And then at that time, Fred Smith, who had briefly been in Blondie, you know, joined television on bass. And that became oh, wow. the core lineup. So it's interesting with this band. They built a lot of heat very quickly. You know, they became one of the fixtures at CBGB's they started to build a really diehard cult following. They started getting label interest, but they didn't sign right away. They actually recorded some demos with uh, with Brian Eno in, um, for Island Records in late 1974, but Tom Verlaine was just not into it. He just thought the production was too cold, too hmm. brittle. He really kind of had an idea of what he wanted to do, and I think it was important to him to have creative control, to produce the record. When they made the television record, to produce it. So they released a an indie single, Little Johnny Jewel, parts one and two on 75, just independently. And then eventually they signed to Electra in the summer of 76. And Electra gave them, you know, carte blanche to basically have Verlaine produce the record, follow kind of his creative muse with it. Straight away they enlisted Andy Johns to engineer and co-produce the record. Now, Tom Verlaine loved his production on Goat's Head Soup. And when you hear this record, you can kind of hear a thread with that mid-70s stone sound. You know, it's right there. Yeah. And his singing. Yeah. For, his singing uh, is so Jagger-esque at times. Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, but in a very, it's still in a very different musical context, I would say. 
you know, sonically very different than than um, than the Stones. But one interesting thing to note with this band, and it gives you some insight into how meticulous they were and the way they constructed the songs. You know, they recorded the album in September of 76 at A&R Studios in New York, but before they went into the studio, now this is old school right here, they spent 40, four to six hours a day, six to seven days a week, rehearsing. Oh my God, before they went into the studio, they yes. spent, yes. oh my God. So I think that's cool to know about this record when you listen to it. Much of the rec- record was recorded live in the studio. It sounds you know, like it. It sounds like it, right? It has that yeah. feel. Sometimes mm-hmm. one take, you had the guitars dialed in, multi-track to the left and right channels. You hear that in the record. And very, very minimal studio effects, overdubs. And the final mixes were basically just uncompressed, which I love. Uh-huh. You know, there there's an air. You know, when you compress too much, it creates that more brittle sound. Maybe that's what he rejected with Brian Eno. I don't know. That was kind of his description of those early recordings they did. But, you know, just to take a little tangent the the way music has evolved the way music production has evolved you know with digital technology is amazing i mean you can make a great record on garage band at your house you know you don't really need to put players together in a room and record like that anymore but i have to say every record i hear past and present and you don't hear it as much anymore where you had a working unit that was on tour or rehearsed like these guys I don't even think they were touring at this time. They were basically just playing CBGBs. But when the, the players have this synergy and they are just so locked in on the songs and you can just capture that essentially live in the studio, there's a magic that happens there that you can't duplicate with just programming and, and layering. And I think that's one of the things that I think, you know, really makes this album special. And then kind of like to touch on what we were talking about, there's an interesting dichotomy with this band. You know, they came out of the mid-70s, sort of post-punk, CBGB scene. You know, there was the raw simplicity of just guitar, bass, and drums. But then when you look underneath that, at the substance of actually what the music is, there's just very sort of meticulous, rehearsed kind of compositional harmonic structure to everything they do. You know, even when they have it, like you were talking about this with uh, Alice in Chains, like there's a 10-minute song on here. I feel like every note is planned. The, the title track, yeah. Marquee Moon. Yeah. It's very constructed, you know? In some ways, I think they're sort of writing production is more connected to like jazz composition or progressive rock in some ways. You know, there's no power chords in this music. No. When I think punk rock, I think three power chords, boom. Mm-hmm. Just hit it, simple, raw, you know. This is something else. So, but maybe where you could say they did retain that punk ethos is kind of in how they recorded. We're not going to go in and make this thing really polished. I think the thinking was, let's capture the band, what it does, unfiltered almost in the studio. So just to hit a few checkpoints on the record, because I, I really think to fully get this album, you really do have to listen all the way through. I say that for every album we do, but I think that's how you should listen to music, you know? Well, it's certainly the ones that we're talking about. You know, there, there are songs that sound great on their own, but I also think in all these albums, but I also think if 
a lot of times the artist goes tr- goes through the trouble of putting a certain song at a certain point in the album before another song and after another song. It means something. It does, know? and I think uh, we talked about that a lot with with uh, with John Ross, you know, with uh, mm-hmm. Wild Pink, and it's nice that there are contemporary music makers, uh, and their new record is just beautiful. Oh, the Wild Pink record? Yeah, I think it's so cool that we talked to him a few months before and sort of got like a little bit of a glimpse uh, of what was going on, sort of the thinking behind that. But I just love that he's all about that, you know? What what a bad service we did for him. Promotion for the record, he comes on, we released the pod like (laughs) two and a half months before the record comes out. But But in a way, you're right. In a way, maybe we could have timed it a little better. Yeah. Um, But... But I feel like, but I feel like, I mean, it would be fun to have him do like a record club at some point. Oh, you yeah. know, it would be great. Well, feel, pick some fucking Bruce Spring. Do you know he, they're doing a covers EP and it's got Springsteen and Taylor Swift on it? Wow. Yeah. I'm how, doing, how do you two feel? Of my least favorites. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're psyched to, you know, at the song choices. <laughs> but see, you'll like it the way they do it. Yeah. Because I'm sure they're picking great songs. You just. I think with the boss, you just don't like the presentation. You don't necessarily dislike the songs, correct? Because you love people who cover the boss. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think he stinks. <laughs> yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, me. And Taylor Swift's songs are great. Obviously, I just think sh- they're forgettable. I think they're just they're great pop songs that won't stand the test of time. But right. in any case, I don't we we definitely uh, went around that bent on the uh, yeah yeah I don't need recent Jason A U F. No, I, I hear yeah. what you're saying. Like there is a distinction. I guess with a lot of artists, they're all there's a synergy between those things. Mm-hmm. But you can appreciate a great song and not love the original artist's yeah performance. I mean, look, Bob Dylan is the best example of that. Yeah. How many times have you heard like an amazing cover of a Dylan tune? When you go back and listen to the original, I mean, look, and I'm a fan of Bob Dylan, but, you know, when you go back and listen to the original, you're like, huh, this isn't quite as satisfying. Yeah. What the fuck is this guy doing? Well, by the way, you could have a great script, then you don't like the actor reading the words. Yeah. Or you don't like the direction, you don't like the cinematography. But but it doesn't mean it's not a great song or a great script. Yeah. You know? Of course, of course. But um, I, I think with this with th- this band, I think is really unique. Just getting back to that Marquee Moon, that's like a ten minute opus. Yeah, it's but great. it doesn't feel like ten minutes. It feels very developed. That you know, one thing with this band that I think they do really well, and they kind of set the blueprint with it on Venus and a lot of the other songs is. And we've talked about this with other bands, and I think this band, it applies to more than anything. A lot of the hooks are guitar hooks or mm-hmm. guitar harmonies. Yeah. You know, like, for example, on Venus, there's this sort of instrumental hook that comes in continually, and that really becomes the hook. Or in Marky Moon, there's a line that comes in after every, you know, after every verse, and that mm-hmm. kind of serves as the hook. Like, I think the melodies in this song are really in this album are really as much in the in the guitars as anything else. And then 
Marky Moon is interesting because it kind of spotlights Tom Berlain's lyric writing, which I really dig too. He kind of has these like visual sort of psychedelic lyrics. And in his own words, he's admitted a lot of times he didn't understand what his own songs were about. For him, it was more of like a snapshot of an experience, you know? And I'll quote what he said about his lyrics. He said, the lyrics are a little moment of discovery or releasing something or being in a certain time or place and having a certain understanding of something. You know, so it's not always about, you know, necessarily what the lyrics are saying, if you think of them just from a pragmatic sense, but like what they evoke. And I think a lot of the, not every song, but a lot of the songs have that kind of thing. You know, then just a couple other, and then I'm interesting to hear uh, your your take, and amazed that you didn't know this band. I thought maybe you had some some sense. I've, I've seen the name, and that's about it. That's great. All right. Yeah, yeah. I got to pick more records like this then. Yeah. I'm surprised. Guiding Light is the most Stones-esque. Song to me, you know, his vocal on, on that song is just very reminiscent of Jagger. Yeah, you know, for sure. And, and then the latter part oh, of that. Yeah. yeah, I I actually said, well, I said Guiding Light actually reminds me of The Verve, and The Verve reminds me of... Of The Stones. Rolling Stones, yeah. Yeah, yeah another yeah. band I love, The Verve. I love that yeah, band. Yeah, great uh, band. That's we're going to have to do one of their records for sure. But that song is great because, and it's, when I hear that song, like, you know, this is more, they're like more like, I don't think of them as punk or even post, they're like a classic rock band because there's this, big guitar melody that carries the whole latter part of the song it's a solo but it's really an expansion of the vocal line but then it kind of takes the vocal line and expands on it and it just drives the song home in such a great way and that makes me think of that kind of big amped up kind of solo or solo guitar line that's kind of what makes me think of them more in this sort of classic rock kind of thing. You know, it's just like, you wouldn't hear big solos like that in punk rock music, but that's, no. that's not the ethos at all. I mean, and then Torn Curtain. Right at the end, uh, kind of like the Alice in Chains record in a way, has a very psychedelic kind of '60s rock kind of thing to it. It's a little mm-hmm. bit, a little bit of a different direction than some of the other tunes. But just in summation, I, I love this record. I hadn't listened to it for a while. Came back. Uh, there was a time when I listened to this over and over and over and again. It's great driving music, you know, on the road. And I just think they're the quintessential guitar band. You know, just as far as a band that could write great guitar melodies and harmonies. I love the compositional sense. I really dig the kind of tripped out visual lyrics, uh, just and and the simplicity of the recording. I love that. Just a picture of guys in the room playing. So interested to uh, yeah to hear your thoughts. So the first thing that I thought was is like, oh, it's another great British band, and <laughs> I I didn't even. So the more I listened to it, it it certainly evolved. But they sounded like a like there's a see no evil. Sounds like, like, 
Stones. It just it sounded yeah. like the Rolling Stones to me. Singer sounded like he was doing a again. This is my first listen. Sounded like he was doing like a Mick Jagger almost impression, like heavily influenced by the Rolling there Stones. There are definitely but, moments where it seems like that throughout the record. Yeah, I think you know, apps a hundred percent. But then I started listening to the vocals, and the vocals started reminding me of the Sex Pistols. Huh. And like some of his cadence and and some of it, like obviously Johnny Rotten sang, sang off key and yelled and all of those sorts of things. But I, the the punk stuff I got from his vocals sometimes more than anything else. Now that you say they were a CBGB's band, it actually starts to make sense later on what I started thinking the more I started listening to it. So then I'm like, man. I would say that the alternative music that came out from 04 to like 2015 Mm -hmm. all was heavily influenced by this. Like I I heard The Strokes in there, which is obviously like sort of a quintessential New York alternative band that has – there's some punk feel to it, even though they're not punk. They're sort of garage, whatever that is. Maybe that's yeah. more appropriate to talk yeah. about television. And then the guitar, that dueling guitars and sort of the spaciousness in the guitar reminded me of Modest Mouse. I would be like, oh, mm-hmm. like I hear, I hear alternative bands taking from this. And then of course, I mentioned that Guiding Light, which is a, a really, really pretty song, reminded me of The Verve, which is maybe a little bit before that time, but still... It actually sounds like connective tissue between classic rock because ultimately I agree with you. It sounds like a classic rock album. That's I don't I would never describe them as post punk. But I Yeah, do they don't f- feel like they really fit that parameter. When you really look at look at it for what it is musically, right? It doesn't feel mm-hmm. of that. But there are a few touchstones there that, yeah. that pull it in that direction. Well, and I imagine a lot of it is, I know it sounds shallow, but a lot of it is maybe how they looked and how they acted. Because when we were talking about emo music coming from hardcore, you're like, well, I don't really see the line there. And I know if you went to see the band, you would see the line. You know, like you would see... It's more um, the aesthetic. It's almost more the... The attitude, the aesthetic. Yeah, it's the, the superficial aspects of it or the, mm-hmm. right, right. It's the surface elements of it. that. Yeah, or or it could be where it's coming from. Right. Like it could be, you could have, you could have two people like from the same group of people, they, they act the same, they, they dress the same, all of those things and feel the same feelings and interpret them in two different ways. And in, in a way, those two sounds are connected even though, if you don't know the history behind it, you might never ever hear it. And I, I think maybe that's some of it too. Like I can imagine if they were just playing CBGBs every night, that's post punk. Like that's that's right. you know that's what that is, and that's that does, that that makes it less surprising to me that I hear the Strokes in there and I hear garage rock, you know, the Hives and all that kind of stuff in the attitude of it and in the guitar too. Yeah, I think they're hugely influential on alternative rock, indie rock, mm-hmm. maybe even go back to 80s, 90s, but then you're right, especially some of the bands. The Strokes, I think that was always the, this was the band that a lot of people that compared them to when they first came out. Okay. But I, I feel like they're almost unheralded in a way because they were so short-lived. They had this record, mm-hmm. one more, they split up, made one more record in the early 90s, so they don't have this like big discography. I just, I really think it's this album, this sound, 
mm-hmm. very specific elements of this record have been hugely influential. Maybe more than a lot of those band, you know, fans that listen to the Strokes or some of these groups probably don't even realize. Oh yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I didn't realize I worked in music for a living, you know. And I, and and by the way, it's the Strokes had a moment in time, and they've been. I know they just won a Grammy. Right. By the way. <laughs> yeah. It's not like they were the biggest band in the world. You know, like, it, it's not like the Strokes took, a, the Strokes had a moment and they, they had a song really, maybe two songs. I don't, I, I don't know that most of their, their fans would tie it to this, you know, Probably because not. this band was never even that big. It's not like a, uh, it's not like Oasis and the Beatles. Let's put it that way. No, you no, know? no. They're, like they're a cult band, relatively yeah. speaking, you know. Yeah. It's a cool album. I, I I really like the guitar too. I thought the uh, the guitar was interesting, and it was another album where the songs aren't really like super catchy or anything. But the title track is amazing. You know, like it it just it's a guitar opus. It's so good. Yeah, it's like ten ten thirty ten and a half minutes. Yeah, song or but but it yeah. doesn't feel that way, right? Mm-mm. Yeah, Be- because no, that's the thing. You can have a super long tune that if it's composed a certain way. Yes. If it's thought of as a whole piece, it doesn't feel like it meanders. It's only when it's like a, just a, a directionless jam. Totally. That like, it, you know, the six minutes can feel long that way, you know? Yeah. Like when you're talking about Paranoid Android from Radiohead, I think is seven minutes long or eight minutes long. Even Jesus of Suburbia by Green Day on American Idiot is nine minutes long. Really? And, wow. Yeah, and it's section. It's basically like three Green Day smashes all in one song, all tied together, and it doesn't feel long at all. Yeah, if you don't know that song, you should listen to it. It's I get it. You know, I, I remember I kind of listened through that record. I never really delved into it that thoroughly, but I know it was like a kind of a social commentary. Oh, it's incredible. American Idiots, incredible. Yeah. Is that yeah. generally considered sort of their defining sort of artistic well, masterpiece? I guess it is in some ways, right? Yeah, it's their defining artistic masterpiece, though Dookie is their that's best the album. Yeah, but even Nimrod's great. I mean, that's a whole other discussion. Green Day is... Well, just to bring it back to the very first episode, you mentioned Dookie. Yeah. When I first got turned on a silver chair on that French exchange program, yeah, the my exchange the guy that who's who had come to stay with me and then I stayed with his family. His brother, remember, kind of turned me on a silver chair, and he's like, "Yeah." One of the other ones I forgot was, "Do you like a dookie by the Green Day?" <laughs> <laughs> it was a, a silver chair, a battery Nirvana Foo Fighters, and a dookie by the Green and Day. And a dookie. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that one. I just remember he had a huge poster of it. So oh, I got schooled on all three uh, Foo Fighters. I remember he was just listening to those records over and over again. Just to dial it back. I was talking to my guitar teacher about it. Like Green Day, when you consider their entire career, is like one of the greatest American rock bands of all time. Like, certainly they, enduring, right? I mean, I, and they've had a, a range of different hits, like uh, The Time of My Life. Is that what that song is called? Just like yeah. an acoustic tune? 35 they, years of hits, ba- basically, you know? And, and s- such a long, I mentioned him, such a long catalog that when I saw them on the American Idiot tour and they played songs from Dookie, most of the crowd didn't know the Dookie songs. 
and we're talking about long view and when i come around like like songs that i grew up on as just That's their amazing. most enormous hits yeah well when you can transcend generation yeah when you keep finding new fa- waves of fans which a lot of bands can't do yeah and the see to me that always means the songs are just undeniable oh yeah like he's Green a great Day songwriter song. billy joe armstrong yeah, I've been I've been tempted to do Green Day records every once hey. in a while. At some point, I'll do it. I already have my next album picked out. Though, Me too. So. Me too. Yeah. Oh, great. great. <laughs> okay. Anyway, Ice Cube. Yeah. All right, Ice Cube, The Predator. This is an album, quite honestly, you know, we, we had talked over text about it. I wanted to, I, I've talked about, you know, we talked with Jason about current r- rap music. And, you know, when we did Lyrics Born, I talked about how a lot of the current stuff I don't get into. And I always feel like I'm old when I do that. And I wanted to pick a rap record that I loved and meant a lot to me. But there's so much of it that feels like social commentary or experience that I have so little to do with that is almost weird to talk about, you know? Like, like what is this idiot white guy talking about it on a <laughs> podcast for? But I went back to this album. I think, it, I think Spotify ended up re-showing it to me, you know, dive back in or something. And I was like, oh man, I fucking love The Predator. And I was like, I'm doing, we're doing it on, on the Carl. So here we go. If anything that I say sounds out of touch, I apologize. Know that I have a great deal of appreciation for the music and it came out at a time and that was important to me. And the music is obviously says something different to me than it says to him or says to, but I fucking love it. What I love about rap of this era is that it had so much similarity to, and what attracted me to it is there was so much similarity to like, it's just very aggressive, you know? And it was a time in my life where I really enjoyed that in music, you know? Unabashed, and just, you know, fearless, musically totally and lyrically. Fearless. Yeah, which you gotta love that, that commitment to that. Totally fearless. And you can feel it in your face, you know? And so this is, Predator is Ice Cube's third album. America's Most Wanted, Death Certificate, I would say actually are both usually considered better than The Predator. I don't think it is better. I think this is the moment that it came together. Ice Cube, if you're young and listening to this, was in NWA, and which historically, when you look at it, a rap group with Dr. Dre and Ice Cube and Eazy-E and MC Ren is almost impossible, right? A super you know? group. It was a super group out of the gate. Yes. And if you've seen... Straight out of comp, like the, I think there's a lot of younger people who know who NWA is now simply because of that that movie. I still haven't you know? seen that movie. Is it? It's fine. It, you know what it is. It is a great movie if you don't know the story. If you know the story, it feels like a an oversimplified fake version of of what happened. Though, I know they were involved in it and they approved of it. It just if you already know the story, it doesn't seem that interesting to me. You know, yeah, that's, that's okay. what you just said there is generally my my issue with these sort of biopic mm-hmm. films. I'd rather just see the documentary about it. 
exactly what I was thinking when I was watching it is you know what it watches like? It watches like if you're watching America's Most Wanted and they do the simulation of what happened because they don't have the they don't have the video of it right, like that right. that actor. That's what the movie reminded me of. It it felt inauthentic. It it actually the same way that Creed felt inauthentic to me when I watched it, I was like, "Ah, oh, this is like this movie's bullshit." Um, Creed, the the reboot of Rocky. Rocky, yeah. See, I really that liked felt- that, but it was different. I thought of it in a different way. I mean, if you look at it through the lens of it's not really, it's not the original. It's like a tangent. Well, it just to it, it just seemed like a music video. That's what I felt like I was watching. The right. same thing with Straight Outta Compton. I felt like I was watching a music video. In any case, The Predator is his third record. And the time that it came out is incredibly important for the context of the album in that the Rodney King riots happened in the spring of 92. And then this album comes out in November of 92. It really feels like Ice Cube's statement about police violence in America and racism in America and a a musical reaction to the Rodney King verdict and and the riots and an examination of it and a defense of it in certain times and a the way that he comes at you in this album is like it starts right in the beginning and then it it really doesn't ease up until the end and i think what i would have to say is ice cube says a lot of things that are that people question, right? Like he's been, he said things that are anti-Semitic for sure. And it's addressed he, on the record too. I mean, he kind of yes. just goes right at it. He doesn't back yeah. off of it in any way. No, like it really in the first song, really. Right. He addressed, it, like it's he, like he's not, he's not, there's no element of him trying to cover it up in any way or sugarcoat in any way. He comes right at you with his take on it and where yep. he's coming from. And whatever people think of it, there's an honesty in that. That he's just yeah. giving it to you where he came from. Uh, you know, again, some of th- I know some of the things he said have been questionable. That's happened recently with him, too. Yes, Some very of these recently. same refrains. And- you know, one of the things that it made me think about is, so if you hear this album, and then you realize it's 2021, he's still pissed off about the same shit. And he goes, and because I, I remember when he met with Trump about yeah. like his, <laughs> his, and, and his plan for black America. And they were like, how could you do that? How could you do that? And he was like, I'm sick of this bullshit. I don't care what party anybody's in. All I care about is that you are going to listen to me and you're going to do something for fucking black people because it's been too long since nobody's done anything for black people. And and he didn't really back off of it. And he's like, I don't, I don't support him just like I don't support him. I need somebody to help black people. I am talking about what are you going to do for black people? And if you hear this album and then realize that 30 years later, he's like, oh, same shit. Yeah. Like I, I you know what I'm like, I can understand his perspective. That's I what's think. remarkable to me about this album is that even though it was written at a very specific moment in time, Mm-hmm. A, a, a senator on a very specific series of events. Everything he touches on, dealing with racial injustice, police brutality, it it is exactly every bit as resonant now as it yes. was then. And that's what the amazing thing about about art, about great music, film. I w- I always think this when I see the film do the right thing, mm-hmm. which I watch that movie every time it comes on. It's, I, I love Spike Lee. I've, I mean, I love Inside Man, Malcolm X. He's made so many great films. But to me, Do the Right Thing is his defining achievement. And when you watch that film, same thing. Everything that is discussed in that movie 
every topic, every issue, man, it's just as meaningful, just as resonant now. It's just as much of a challenge now as it was then. And that's amazing to me that something, you know, a film or an album that was made 30 years ago can still just have that visceral power because unfortunately some things have changed and most things haven't. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of what, if you want to look at a really overarching view, you know, this, this record doesn't feel dated in its subject matter at all. It just feels we're still dealing with the same challenges from a societal standpoint. One other thing he gets into a lot is the vilification of African-Americans by the media. Mm-hmm. And if you think of our media environment now, that's even more the case. There's constant scapegoating and vilification of minorities and immigrants in the media. So it's strange. It's almost it's almost more visceral now. It's almost like prophetic in a way because so many things he talks about are, are timeless. Sadly, you'd think we'd be further along, but we're not. He addresses it in lyrics, and also it's basically like the interludes between all of the songs are basically media, you know? Yeah, is, is, it is the one is interview. Hearing what you're saying, I'm very scared. What is he saying that you have a problem with? What is he saying that you have a problem with? What scares us is I think we hear. Yeah. He, he has a couple different interviews. Yeah. Which I have to say on that note, some of the best interludes... Uh, well, rap albums and interludes are just like. But come this on, man. one does it yeah. so perfectly. Yeah. It just timed at the perfect spot in the record each time. It it makes it sound like a concept album in in some and and the album itself, like I would describe it as chaotic and confrontational, and there's almost like a sound of dread, like it it uh, there's almost like a, I don't know, like the 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 dread of a. Not a horror movie, but you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, like it, yeah. it sounds stressful. It's a stressful listen. And what's interesting is the song that everybody knows off of this is It Was a Good Day, oh, man. which is a great tune. Court and I'm troubled. Last week, messed around and got a triple double. Freaking brothers every way, like MJ. I can't believe today was a good day. but tonally is so much different than the rest of the record, which comes at you at such a pace. You know, lyrically, it was a good day, fits completely. It's just, it's funny that this, that that's the song that lasts all this time. But again, uh, sequencing wise, perfect yes. placement in the record. Kind of, yeah, there's that ominous intensity and pretty much every track in interlude before and after that, it's just a bit of a respite amidst all that. But still topically, Right on it. And that song, see, that's one of my favorite songs of all time. I love that song. That brings about nostalgia for me. Because at this time, when this record came out, I never really listened to albums. I would Mm. watch videos on MTV. And if I liked the song enough, I would go buy the cassette single. And I had the cassette single of It Was A Good Day. And you had the instrumental on the back. Mm-hmm. So once you memorize it, you could, you know, do your own rendition of it, you know? So I remember when this came out, I think it was this album or it was America's Most Wanted. I had to ask someone to buy me the album in the mall because it had the warning label on it. Because uh, remember Tipper Gore and the parental advisory, right. explicit <laughs> lyrics, and they wouldn't sell them to an underage kid when I was in the mall. So it might've been America's Most Wanted because this album, I was 16 and I think it was when I was a little younger than that because I hadn't driven myself to the mall. Someone had driven me there. So 
strange um, to even have that conversation now. Like, oh that doesn't God. exist anymore. Like, yeah, the entire thing. It's like to even think, oh, well, like, I want to go buy this record at the store. Yep. Yeah. When everything is just at your fingertips now. Yeah. I mean, Buy the record, not allowed to. Like, can you imagine? It's so like, bizarre. It's, hitting an album on Spotify, and it's like, we got to make sure that you're 18 first. Yeah. You yeah. So we got to screen you on this one, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so the album opens up. There's a, it starts with a, a, uh, an interlude, but then it goes right into when will they shoot? I'm the OG and I bust back. Bust back. Which is uses the beat from We Will Rock You and is just like an assault and is like a welcome to the jungle level opener of an album that sets the tone and and then it goes right into Wicked. Which is another just assault, by the way. If you've never heard the corn cover of Wicked, it's, it's amazing. Oh, they did a cover it, of that? Wow. Yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you. It's really good. And then the other couple of songs that, that have stuck with me over the years. Check Yourself, which if you want... It dates it because it has Das Effects in it, and Das Effects is like <laughs> is '90s, you know, like Das Effects. I love Das Effects, effects man. That's it's amazing, man. right? Wait, uh, they were bum 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 I mean, they just had such a an unusual and specific and totally unique vocal thing that they did. Yeah, which I yep. love. Yeah, they they need to come back around. We need to. Oh my god, let's Dos get them on the CLRC. It'd be great to have Daz effects on. <laughs> uh, and that song samples the message by Grandmaster Flash, an, an ode to you know one of the OGs. All right, so I was saying. This happened in 92, and it still sounds prescient now. There's a song directly about the riots called We Had to Tear This Motherfucker Up. Which starts with a statement from the mayor of Nashville in 1961, talking about law and order because it was when there were sit-ins at luncheonettes where, you know, anti-segregation sit-ins. And here is the mayor that, that opens up the song, basically talking about it from 61. And at this point it's 92 and now it's- Another 30 uh, years on. Yeah, another 30 years. So it's a, another great song, but I think all of these songs, it does age well, but it definitely sounds like it came out when it came out. And this is, it just, it has the attitude of everything I liked about it. And the songs are fucking amazing. Like he would, he just, I think Ice Cube has had such a forgettable last 20 years that 
you forget how good he was for the first part of his career. Yeah, well, it's interesting. In a way, his acting career has eclipsed sort of the musical career, although it shouldn't. Mm-hmm. But I think more people know him maybe now, especially younger kids, as a as an actor. But man, his flow, his delivery, the timbre of his voice, the, his ability as a storyteller, that's what makes It Was a Good Day such an amazing song. Mm-hmm. He's oh, just yeah. an incredible storyteller. His ability to put out social commentary through his songs. And, you know, we always talk about this thing. It's like, do you catch the nuance of every line? Does every line deliver? I, I would say every song of his does that. There's not a wasted line. And like, especially, I'm going to get back to It Was a Good Day because I just love that song. But every piece of that song drives the story along. And I love the video, but you wouldn't need the video to get the visual of what he's giving you. You know what oh, I'm saying? Oh, yeah. No, no, no. It's he a great video, though. Picture. I love the yeah. video. But. <laughs> well, but the video almost looks like the way you would imagine it. Exactly. And maybe it's because I think about the video when I think about the song, but it looks like the song sound. Yeah, you, you, know? you would have never had to have seen the video. That's a brilliant piece of songwriting. And I have to say one other thing. You were talking about the production. That's one of the things I love about this record is that early 90s sample-driven mm-hmm. production. And a lot of these samples are classic soul records. You know, Footsteps in the Dark by the Isley Brothers sampled and it was a good day. Yeah, Funky Worm by the Ohio Players, and You Can Make It If You Try by Sly and the Family Stone is on Wicked. You know, I'm Blue by the Sweet Inspirations is on Check Yourself. You, you take these beautiful, like, classic soul songs, you take snippets of them, totally rework them into these beats that are just all of a sudden ominous and give the like soundscape for him to do his thing and tell the story and give the commentary. I just, there's a genius in the production to this Mm -hmm. and I don't hear hip hop production like this anymore. Maybe to some degree it's because getting sample clearances can become so expensive, Mm -hmm. but I just love this sound, this era of hip hop production. It's just, it's a sound collage almost. And when I think, oh, it's like, you know, it was a good, it's an Isley Brothers tune. But he reworked it and made it something totally new, totally fresh. I, I just love that. I feel like the entire album, you can imagine hearing sirens in the background of. Right. Almost. You know, like it paints a cityscape, like a busy cityscape. And they all, all in different ways, but it is a, uh, it's a phenomenal record. He was a phenomenal lyricist. His first four albums, I would say, were were just so good. And then there's the, I, I don't know if you remember Gorillas in the Mist, the Lynch Mob album. Like that were sort of- That was a little bit later, days. right? That was kind of yeah. late 90s, I guess, maybe? Uh, or early no, 2000s? I, th- I think, yeah, no, I think it was it was mid-90s. It was, uh, I think it was mid, it was probably, the Lynch Mob album was probably 95 or 96. Oh, and it was then, earlier on, okay. Yeah, and then he had, what was, Push and Wait was a cool song, but everybody hated it. And that was just sort of like the end of, you know, by 99, Ice Cube the Musician was almost he hasn't made that many records know. since right i mean he's been no, he's no. been prolific as an actor I and mean, i've enjoyed him as an actor i mean friday come on mm-hmm. that was great you know yeah. he wrote friday it's interesting this only came out what three years after two three years after predator friday mm-hmm. came out yep again like his ability as a storyteller like it, it carries over to a different medium uh, yeah, I know he's mainly been focused as, as an actor i'd actually love to see him write more scripts because i don't think that's something he's done as much but when you think of friday 
great, great comedy. I just think he has an ability to communicate that is unique and singular to him, you know? And I mm-hmm. guess this record, songs like It Was a Good Day, Check Yourself, these songs, like, they're they're seminal, enduring classics. Like, they're always going to be resonant, I think. Lethal Injection, which was, like, the last real good one, came out in 93, a year after The Predator. So he went America's Most Wanted in 90, Death Certificate in 91, The Predator in 92, and then Lethal Injection in 93, which wow. is pretty incredible you know so in so, a way did friday kind of mark the end of his because that was i think 94 95 yeah something like that That kind yeah. of marked the end of a turning point where he became more focused on his acting career i guess probably oh and wow look at this the gorillas in the mist record came out in 92 went gold oh right in the midst of that run he had a great yeah. run there four records in a row the group considered the consisted of rappers Shorty, T-Bone, JD, and Malky. Their Islamic and socially politically inspired lyrics garnered much attention. Garnered much attention sounds like, <laughs> sounds like a, 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 a very uh, politically correct way of saying controversial. Yeah, you know? yeah. Garnered, garnered much, much attention. attention. Obviously, you love this record, right? Yeah. I mean, this is yeah, and you know what's weird? I knew the singles, because like I said, at that time, I always listened mm-hmm. to singles and watched videos. But yeah. I, I don't know that I ever really just listened. I knew the record... I knew some of the tunes on here, but I'm not sure that I'd ever just listen to it top to bottom. I mean, it's it's like you said, it's if you put this on your headphones and you listen, it's powerful and you're like yeah. you're like on edge after you're done yeah. listening to it. In it's the like best way possible. Just like after you watch Breaking Bad, you know, if I would watch 3 4 episodes of Breaking Bad. Have you seen that that show? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. it's it's the same kind of feeling I would get. Like yeah. I would be so yes. into it and then I'd step away and I'd be like, "Oh man, I'm like I'm like really anxious and like amped up. Yeah, you know? that's what this album does. It definitely makes you feel anxious in that in that same way. Classic. Important album, so I'm glad we did it. Uh, if you got a record, remember the Apple Podcast reviews. I thank you for spending your your Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday. If the fucking podcast comes out on Tuesdays. It doesn't mean you're listening on a Tuesday. <laughs> anyway, that's all we got. We're done. Stay free, my goose. Goofy again. <laughs> Yeah. Uh-huh.